This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, church. If you don't know me, my name is Kyle Kobukun. Uh, I'm the pastoral intern here at Trinity. Um, and I've actually been out the last couple weeks on vacation, uh, traveling through too many airports and too many places uh, than was restful. But at the same time, it's always fascinating to me when you are sitting in an airport or you're listening to other people talk and you realize that just by the words that they say, you can kind of pick out where they're from. Uh, and I'm not just talking about like accents or like when I'm sitting on the beach and a guy opens his mouth and I'm like, whoa, you're from the deep south. Um, but the reality of like the words and the phrases we use, they kind of give away who we are and where we're from. I think of like if I were to go back to the kitchen right now and pull out a can of Pepsi, and I were to ask you what would you call this, I'm sure there would be many identify the communities that we believe in or that we are a part of. I think of just last night watching uh, my beloved Buckeyes uh, win their first game of the football season, and there's so many different words and phrases that I would use as a part of the Ohio State University that others around don't understand. And there's so many things of our communities and our friends, we have all these little phrases that really identify that we're a part of these people. And we're not immune to that in the church. We're not immune to that even as a staff on Trinity and La Travesia when we're here uh, throughout the week. One of my favorite phrases that I think comes from the La Travesia guys uh, is whenever there's food in the fridge, uh, whenever you hear that this is for the people of God, it always makes me really excited because it means, one, I have free food uh, and I've never turned down free food. But two is just, it gives you that little heartwarming sense of like, oh yeah, I'm part of the people of God. This is, this is really great. And it's a reminder that you're a part of a special community. Um, but just like every other community, whether it be our sports teams, where we're from, what church we belong to, that we are the people of God, they all have to be defined. There has to be a way of understanding who's in, who's out, who's a part of this, who's not. Otherwise, it leads to arguments, dissension, and division. And that's the point that we're going to see this morning as we open to 1 Samuel again. We're going to be in chapter 30 this morning, and we're going to see that David's little band of a small collective of what would be God's people are coming to an argument over who's a part of this community, who's, who's in and who's out. And for David as the king, it's left up to him to really remind them what it means to be a part of God's people. He's going to have to define what it means to be a part of this community. And for David, we're going to show us that, one, God's community is defined by grace. And he's going to show us that God's community is defined as a family. And so as we open God's word this morning, I invite you to stand out of reverence for the word. As we read 1 Samuel chapter 30, we're going to begin in verse 1 and read all the way through verse 25. Uh, it says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried, off and went their, carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Achanom of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. 
But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? He said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the, people, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the, the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. Now, as we begin looking at the conflict here between these wicked and worthless fellows and the 200 that are left behind, we're going to see that David has to step in and establish a definition of what it means to be God's people. And the first thing he's going to establish is that we are defined by grace. And while this conflict doesn't take place until verses 21 through 25, I made sure that we read this whole chapter, not just because I enjoy reading long passages, but I wanted you to get an idea of where these wicked and worthless men are coming from, why they're so upset. Because the reality is that David and his people are living in the land of the Philistines. Up at this point, they have fled Israel, and this little band of misfit toys are staying over here in Ziklag. It's the Philistine territory. There's a local governor of the Philistines that is allowing them to live there, and they are on good terms. But now the Philistines have gone to march off against Israel in war. They're going to fight Saul. It's going to be the battle where Saul will eventually lose his life, and he commands David and his men to come fight with him. 
And so David and his men go up and they start coming to march with the Philistines. But when they show up, the five Philistine kings are sitting there and going, whoa, 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 who's that guy? You cannot bring him with us. Like he is an Israelite. We know who David is. Like there are songs about David slaying Philistines. This is a bad idea to bring him into this war. And so they send David and his 600 men on home. Now the problem is there's no cars or trains or planes to get home, so they have to march back to Ziklag. And we pick it up in, in chapter 30 where it tells us it's a three-day journey. It's some 50 or 60 miles that they've walked back home, and you're thinking, at the end of this, you're probably tired. To put that in perspective, 50 to 60 miles is about the distance if you left here this morning and walked your way to Ponce. It's not fun. It's going to be long. I've never walked that far in my life, nor do I ever desire to walk that far in my life. But it's what these men had done. But they show up at home expecting good sleep, good food in their families, but they're met by destruction. Their houses are burned, their things are taken, their women and children have been led off as slaves by the Amalekites. And so they weep, as all of us would. They weep until they have no more strength left. But David, being the righteous king he is, strengthens himself in the Lord and his men, and they seek God and desire to go and bring them back. They go on this rescue mission, and God leads them. But then when we come to verse 9 and 10, we see the division of the people. See, they come to this brook based sore, which is another about 10 miles from Ziklag. They've marched further, and when they get here, this river is not an easy one to cross. It's not like a little stream you just hopped over. Uh, archaeologists would tell you that there is a little ravine there, so where you have to climb down a cliff, cross the water, back up the cliff, and then you can go on your way. And so 200 of the 600 men are like, we're too exhausted, we can't go another inch. And so they're left behind to stay by the baggage. But the 400 that go on, they traverse this water, they go on this journey where they march who knows how long until they find an Egyptian. The Egyptian takes them to the Amalekites and then they end up having to fight a war only at that point. And depending on how the Hebrew is rendered, many commentators would say this war we don't know, it could have lasted anywhere from one to three days of fighting. And so think about how exhausting that would be. And then you finally win, you get everything, and you march back to the people, and you come back, and there's the 200 men sitting there by the water, waiting for you to return. And so I think we're all sympathetic with the wicked and worthless men when they show up, and they say in verse 22, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. These men are saying, we did all the work. We're not going to give you any of the spoil. Like, you couldn't even make it across the water, and I went and fought a war for three days. Like, I'm, I deserve this. I deserve what I have achieved. I deserve this spoil. None of you deserve any of it. And I think we're all sitting here thinking, like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, they got their wives and their kids back. They should be content with that. Leave it at that, and we're good. We live in a capitalistic, capitalism is king in our society. And so we want to, you eat what you kill, is our mentality. It's something that we think of that, yeah, you've earned it. You put in the work, you did it with your hands, you reap the benefits of what you've done. But the problem for these men is that they're, they're mistaken on who actually did the work. And we see it by David's response to them in the next verse. He says, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. 
David is exposing to these wicked and worthless fellows that even the 400, none of them really did anything apart from what God had done for them. And when you look at the details, it makes sense that David would say this. They should have never had a chance to do this. They should have never won this battle. They were wandering in the wilderness when God gave them an Egyptian to show them where to go. God directed their path to go upon these Amalekites. Not only that, he directed them there at the perfect timing. Typically, the Amalekites would have been together and ready to fight. And they might have destroyed this band of Israelites. But the problem is we see that they're spread out. They're partying, they're drunk, and stumbling about. What a great time to attack an army bigger than you. And not only that, the reality of the numbers is magnificent. It's funny when you first read it that it says they destroyed everyone except 400 that got away. And you're thinking, well, that's a large number to not have destroyed everyone. But the reality is that the 400 were so insignificant is why you can say that. Imagine a number so big that 400 means nothing to you. That is a very large army. And David's showing up with only 400 men. And yet none of them die, all return, all are brought back. This is clearly a miraculous work of the Lord. And so while the men are praising David and saying it's David's spoil, David says, it's not even my spoil, it's God's. Everything that we have brought back is God's. It's for God's people, of which is not just the 400, but it's the 200 as well. It's a blessing and a gracious gift from God that is meant to be shared among us. And these men don't get it because they don't understand that everything they have is only because of God's grace. And the reality is we tend to fall into that same thought, don't we? As I said, we have the same mentality that I have worked so hard and earned what I have. But the reality is your creativity, your savviness in business, your ability to have these opportunities are only because God has allowed them to do so. Only because God created you in this way. Anything that we have is from God. Our families, our spouses, we only met them at the opportune time that God allowed. We only are able to have kids because God has allowed us to do that. We are only able to have anything that we have because of him. Any breath that we take is given by God. He is the author and sustainer of life. Every morning we wake up is a gift from God. And so the reality is that these men are crying out, just as we read in Matthew 20. They're crying out against their master saying, we deserve this. You can't give them something. We did so much more. But the reality is when it's a gift from God, none of us deserve any of it. And so David's responding to them in the same way that we saw in Matthew 20, and he's saying that is God not allowed to do with what he chooses, with what belongs to him, or do you begrudge his generosity? The problem is it's all generosity from God. It's all his grace showered upon us for all of his people. So what does that look like for us as a church? If we're meant to be God's people, we're meant to be people that have experienced God's grace, how do we share that with one another? How do we live in this reality that we're not grumbling over what our brother and sisters get because they didn't deserve it? What does it look like not to grumble over something when we didn't deserve what we've already received? And to come at it with an attitude of grace and joy. I think this attitude would be a place that looks like the church in Acts 2. A place where God's people were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. This is what the church is meant to look like. We're supposed to receive all that we have with glad and generous hearts. We're supposed to receive that our brothers and sisters receive things and be glad and generous with them. What a great attitude that would look like. And I know for me, this attitude was actually displayed probably best when I think about it by a two-year-old. My wife, Morgan, used to nanny these two twins a while ago, and they were being potty trained at the time that she was there. We'll call the twins Anna and Becca, just for ease of namesake. And these twins were told by their parents that, if hey, if you go in the potty, you're going to get a piece of candy. You're going to get a reward. But the parents also had this other policy of that whatever one twin got, the other twin got to keep it all equal. And so if one twin went to the potty, both got candy. And this potty training strategy worked really well for Anna. She would go to potty, she figured it out, she got candy, and her sister would get candy too. Becca didn't really catch on to what the goal was. She received the goal as candy, which she got when her sister went potty. And so my wife will tell you that multiple occasions you will be there, and she would look at her sister and say, Anna, go potty, because she wanted candy. And I remember when Morgan first told me the story, I'm like, man, that girl's going to run the world one day. She's got it figured out. But when I thought about it more this week, that story came back in my head reading this and realizing that looking at the attitude of Anna really displayed what we should be as a church. You see, she never grumbled and complained that her sister was getting candy. She never showed up to mom and dad and said, whoa, that's not fair. She didn't do anything. And yet she got this candy. But rather instead, Anna as a two-year-old was so pumped that she got a piece of candy and she was even more excited that her sister got to share in this with her. Because how much better is it is to get something good and you get to share it with the ones you love? That was the attitude of this two-year-old, and that is the attitude of God's people. We are people that have experienced so much grace, and we are so excited when another brother or sister steps into that and understands the grace that God has showered upon them. We're excited to share all that we have with them because they are a part of us, a part of our community, a part of God's people. We are people defined by grace. But not just that, we are also people that is defined as a family. See, David goes on and addresses these men, and you see it in the way that the men speak, that they want to make a division between the 400 and the 200. Read it again, what they said when they say, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Now, it becomes pretty obvious when they're using a lot of they and we, us and them, that language is meant to divide. It's a language that makes it very clear, you are not of us. You're not part of my people. You're not part of my group. But even more so than that, they go one step further than just dividing, and they basically condemn these men that stayed behind. They use the language of you can take away your wife and children and depart. It's the same language used of the Amalekites and what they did to their camp. They're saying, you're one step above our enemies because you didn't show up when we needed you. Because you didn't come with us, we want you to leave this community. You're not a part of us. You have to earn the right to be here. And the problem with that strategy is it makes it all merit-based. And David wants to prove to these men that this is not what God's people are for. God's people are not a people built on what you've done, but it's built on who you are. He responds even to these men when he's condemning them and calls them my brothers. That word brings in this family atmosphere. It shows that 
Even the men that he's calling wicked and worthless fellows are still a part of this. They're still brothers. They're united as family because this people is not defined by what you've done, but who you are. These men want to make this uh, community more like a homeowners association than a family. Now, I'm a part of a homeowners association, and it is, I get a lot of benefits from that. It's great. There's a playground for my daughter to play on. There's space for my dog to run around, a little park that we have, and our community stays relatively in good shape. I enjoy my neighbors. I enjoy the rest of the people in this, but they don't love me because of who I am. I'm a part of this community because I pay for it every single month. I pay money, and I'm allowed into the community. I pay this fee, and I'm a part of the community. I put in something in order to get something in return. That's what these men want to make out God's people to be. They said, you didn't go and fight. You don't deserve to be a part of us. You earn your keep. But that's not what David says about God's family. He says, God's people is a family that is bent only on who you are. Now, for those of you that don't know, I'm also expecting a baby in December. And my baby boy is already a part of my family. He's already my son. He's already my little girl's brother. He's already a part of the family. We're not waiting for him to be born and be like, well, do you not cry too much? Do you sleep enough? Do you get good grades? Can you walk at the right time? Are you going to play sports? Are you going to go to college? None of these things define him as part of my family. He's simply my family because he's my son. And that's what it means to be in the family of God. None of us have done enough, and we can't do enough to earn our keep in this community. And yet we get so caught up in trying, don't we? None of us, and I just say this, you're not going to be a part of this community because you tithed enough. You're not going to be a part of God's people because you showed up enough on Sundays or to Bible study. You're not going to be a part of God's people simply because you read your Bible enough and you pray a certain amount of hours a day. All of those things are good. All of those things are worthy to pursue. All of those things are great in growing ourselves into this community. But our simple entrance into the community is not based on these good things. The 400 men, it was good for them to go on this rescue mission. But it didn't define them as God's people because they went or because they stayed. They were defined by it by being a family that was united by God. We are a family as God's people united by Christ and what he has done. It's spoken in, you look at Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6, really explains this best. When it says, I lost it in my notes, but it's all right, here it is. It tells us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in his beloved. That's what it looks like to be the people of God. If you're a Christian this morning and you call yourself a part of this family, you are a child of God only because of what he has done, only because of this adoption that came and it was nothing about what you did. You could never have, you never did anything that was worth being adopted. God's not looking at it and saying there's something you will do that's going to be worth being adopted. He's not going to say that there's anything you could do that's worth being adopted into this family. But it's only because God chose you before the beginning of the world that you're a part of his people, that you are adopted into this family, that we experience the benefits of this gracious family because of Jesus, because of what he has done, because of God's choosing us. 
And we get to rest in that. We don't have to sit here and keep trying to earn God's approval, but simply rest in the fact that Jesus has done it all for us. That's what it looks like. He chose you as a son or a daughter, not because of what you've done, but because of who you are through Christ. According to his glorious grace. And as we rest in that, I want us, as we close this morning, to think through this story one more time and to realize that we're all a part of the 200. We're all coming to this point at Ziklag where we're sitting in the ashes of a burned and destroyed life. We're all sitting in this place where our sin and has come upon us and destroyed anything that was good. We're living in the depravity and we're weeping because we can't do anything about it. We're too weak. We can't march forward. We can't combat sin and death. And yet someone goes beyond the Brooklyn Bay store and does it for us. And that person is Christ. God himself comes down and does what David does here. You see, Jesus is the perfect king. David is meant to be just a symbol of what is to come. And so when we read all the things that are described to David in verses 17 through 20, we can replace Christ in those and see it in our own lives. So 17 through 20, it would say that Christ struck down our enemies of sin and death. Christ recovered all of his people. Not one was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters. Christ brought back all of us, earning for us a spoil in heaven that none of us deserve, and yet he's willing to shower upon us with grace so that we might share it with one another as we live in this family of our brothers and sisters united only in Christ's name. That is the truth that we rest in this morning. That is what David wants to show as the people of God, and that is what is the people of God today and for all time, that we have all been chosen only through Christ, only by his grace, so that we might be united as a family. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning that we can come before you and just praise and worship of what you've done, that it's not about anything that we still have to accomplish. It's not about anything that we could ever do, but it's only looking to you and realizing that you did it all. That you chose us before the beginning of time. That you unite us together as a community that is based as a family. That we are not here because of what we bring to the table, but we are here because you brought us here. God, that we might experience what it looks like to joyously celebrate with our brothers and sisters when we see your grace showered upon each of us, that we would know that it is unfair what you do in our own lives, that everything that we experience is so much more than we deserve, and yet you are happy to do it for us, and we should be happy to see it enacted in the lives of our brothers and sisters. God, give us a spirit this morning that would open our eyes to see how we can provide for one another's needs, how we can draw closer in our communities and in our church families that we would be uniting around the words that you gave us in John 13, that we would love one another as you have already loved us, that we'd be showing your grace as you have already shown to us so that people would know that we are your disciples by how we act with one another. God, allow us to grow in this truth this morning and to rest as your children, your sons and daughters of God through Christ. And it is in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.